Open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Days like today are gifts from the Lord. Services like this one are a refreshment to our souls. Here we are gathered as one church in one service to celebrate one name by which we are saved, Jesus Christ. The last time we gathered like this under an open sky, we baptized 20 people. Today we have the privilege of baptizing seven more, all of which represent the next generation, uh, the ones that we so regularly pray for, that they would grow to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and grow in their faith. Today we get to see some of those prayers answered right before our eyes. Our normal practice is to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, but it seemed to me like on a day like this one, for our focus would simply be to revel in the goodness of the gospel, from the call to worship to the benediction, and so that's my aim for this sermon as well, to celebrate. Are you coming to celebrate? To give thanks to the Lord for how the gospel bears fruit in our lives as believers and through the church. The Apostle Paul writes words of thanksgiving in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Before he warns the church of Colossae of these doctrinal dangers that are knocking on their door, he builds them up by recalling how God is at work in the church. Paul's not unnecessarily optimistic or needlessly pessimistic. He just knows pastorally that people often need reminders to see what the Lord is doing in them and what he's doing through them. So what we find in the familiar expression of faith, hope, and love as evidence of God's grace working in them, producing the good fruit of the gospel. The good fruit of the gospel. That provides an appropriate sermon title for us today as well. There are three things that Paul gives thanks for as he outlines how the gospel has produced, one, faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4. Second, love for all the saints, also verse 4. And finally, hope laid up in heaven, verse 5. So that's where we're headed. Let me invite, if you would, I know you look so cozy Stand your feet once more with me for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Colossians 1. I'll be reading verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you please be seated? The first gospel fruit that Paul thanks God for is the church's faith in Christ Jesus. Before we look at the actual text, let's consider the context of the passage. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter from prison to a church plant in the town of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. He begins with a greeting. It reminds them of their identity as the people of God. Now, these words are critical that we understand them. Two things, he says, that they are saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ. Now, saints is not a super class of Christians. Saints are not a class of people to ever be prayed to. A saint is anyone who's in Christ, you and me. Saint Jeremy, Saint Amy, Saint Matt, Saint Diana. We are the saints of God. Then for Paul, those words in Christ mean everything. By the way, please don't put the word saints on your business card. Let's just, let's just keep it near our hearts. And then, and then Paul uses those words in Christ. And for him, those words mean everything. This is his favorite way of describing the Christian life. In Christ. I want to just tug at that thread for the next half hour, but we have to move on. And so, the saints in Christ. This letter is written to a local church. That's who they are. A group of people like us. Of course, for them to be saints in Christ someone would have already had to have preached the gospel to them. They would have had to have believed in Jesus as their Savior. So verse 6 doesn't leave us wondering. It tells us the name of the person that shared the good news of Christ with them, a man called Epaphras. Epaphras was a local from Colossae who had helped plant this little church in his hometown. Now, the occasion of this letter is primarily to point the saints to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. That's why he writes, and he begins by highlighting the importance of faith in Christ. Now, specifically, he is warring against the belief system of Gnosticism. The Gnostics denied the humanity of Jesus. They would not believe that the Savior could be fully God and fully man because a holy God could not interact with his creation. They believed that everything created, um, everything physical was evil. Everything material was evil. Of course, we know from reading the Bible, even as far back as Genesis 1, verse 3 is the first time we hear this. God's word says that creation is not evil, but what? Good. Good. And so Paul will proclaim that Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, if you want to read more on that, you can just fast forward to verses 15 through 20 sometime uh, over this week and just think about what it means that Christ is fully God, fully man. What is Paul doing? Well, as North Texans, we might think of Paul here as examining the foundation of their faith. Making sure there's no cracks in the walls as their faith has settled. There's no shifting of the house. And if there's any weakness in their faith, he wants to put peers of truth to help hold up their faith for the long term. 
for them to have faith in Christ. He's celebrating their faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now the whole scripture presents God saving his people by faith. Those long ago were saved by faith, looking forward to the coming promises of God. Those at the time of Christ, up to this very moment, we are saved by faith, looking back to the work of Christ, which has been completed on our behalf. It is by faith in Christ, in Christ alone, that we are saved. There is no other way. Let me just address those coming to be baptized this morning for a moment and tell each of you how thankful we are for the privilege and opportunity to witness God's grace at work in your life. Your presence here to um, follow Christ by being baptized. It's a physical reminder of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Do you remember what Paul writes there? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And even this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of any work, so that no one may boast. And so those of you being baptized, as we hear of your faith in Christ, each of us who are Christians are reminded that that's true of us too. God has opened our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, opened our hearts to see the seed of the gospel planted in us, and by God's grace, it has borne the fruit of salvation. So what are we doing today? Boasting not in ourselves, but in the gracious gospel of God. We're bragging on the Lord together. Before we move on, let me just stop and encourage us from this text. For people of the trails, let's be a people who pray for genuine, biblical, Christ-wrought faith to fill our hearts and minds. Pray that we would be a church who takes God at his word by faith builds our lives on Christ, a people who live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us, Galatians 2.20 says. The first fruit of the gospel found in our text is faith. The second reason for thanksgiving comes as Paul mentions the church's love for all the saints. Now, we need to understand that Paul is writing to a church he had never even met. He'd never stood and sang with them like we've done this morning, shared the Lord's Supper with them. He'd never opened the Bible with them, yet he loves them. And he's heard report of their love for one another. How did he hear that? It was Epaphras. Epaphras, this beloved worker, had gone to Paul, reported to him all of the good gospel growth happening in the life of the church. Epaphras is the one who would take this letter back to Paul in prison, or, or to, the, to the church, visit Paul in prison, and go back to the church to read it aloud to them. It was Epaphras that is a model of the love that Paul is looking for and witnessing in the church. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always. Now listen to this language. Struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, the Greek word for how Epaphras prays, 
agonizomai. Agonizomai. What's that sound like? Agonize. Thank you. Goodness, what a great crowd. Agonize. This word means to strive to do something with great intensity, with effort. And so the quality of love that Paul sees in the church is this a love that would care so deeply about the spiritual well-being of all the saints that it would work, struggle, strive, pray, cultivate, plant, protect, all out of a love for Christians. For Paul, the way that Christians love one another is the litmus test of the gospel. You want to know if you've received the gospel? Has it transformed your heart with love for the people of God? The Apostle John agrees, chapter 13, 35. By this love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. By our love for the local church. So there's a little adjective buried in this text that is massively important. It's the word all. Paul doesn't commend the saints for only loving people in their church that look just like them in the same social spheres or economic status or in political agreement. It's not even a love for those that are found to be lovable, but for all the saints. There's that word again. Saints. Paul reminding us who we are in God. The love demonstrated in the early church is what made it stand out so contrastingly from a culture marked by anger and Division. It would be very hard for us to imagine what a culture like that would feel like, right? And this is what the love of Christ did. It made them stand out in a different way. Kent Hughes reminds us how it's barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, joined hands and sat down at one table. They knew themselves to be all one in Christ Jesus. And of course, our love for one another is but a tainted reflection of the love that the Father has poured out for us in sending His Son to die upon a cross. Christ has first loved us while we were by all accounts unlovable, covered in our sin against Him. Uh, when I was a boy, our church would often sing a hymn together at the end of the evening service. And we would get out of our pews and hold hands. It felt like we were breaking all the rules. Now, I'm not going to ask you to hold hands with one another right now. So guys, just calm down. But one of the songs that we sang, and if you know the song, would you sing it with me? We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirit with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. What a wonderful truth that is to us on a day like today. Where we're gathered and have the opportunity to renew our commitment to show love for our church family in the way that we invest our lives in this household of faith. To give ourselves to one another the way that Christ has given himself to us. We are one in the bond of love. And so let us, 
like the example of Epaphras, the example of the church at Colossae, strive to love one another in Christ. This is the good fruit of the gospel, love for all the saints. And the final reason for thanksgiving that Paul mentions is the church's hope laid up in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. Now that's, that's how we have come to learn those three words, but here they appear a bit jumbly. It seems that Paul wants to place the emphasis on this last word, hope. He writes it last to remind the church First, of all of the blessings that await the people of God in the life to come. Most of the American church is so busy making this place heaven, they've lost their appetite for the heaven that will come. This world is not our home. And Christ is coming again. Oh, saints, look up. So as a matter of fact, the way it's written shows that it is their hope in the promises of Christ their hope in the gospel of Christ, their hope in the life to come, that is the very reason that this love and faith are overflowing from their lives. It's the hope they have in the promises of Christ yet to be fulfilled. Their hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or we might say Christ was their hope in life and death. Paul highlights this by showing where their hope was placed. It was laid up in heaven. This connects with what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 and 5, which tells of our inheritance kept for us in heaven and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then we arrive back at verse 5, where Paul says, you have heard all this before in the word of truth, the gospel. He's not telling them anything new, just reminding them of the things they already knew. How much of Christian discipleship, of life in Christ, is not teaching us anything new, but reminding us of the things that we already know. What a wonderful encouragement this passage is to us. Hope in God. People of the trails, hope in God. God. We have traveled through one of the bumpiest roads in recent history. Our hope has been tested. We read endless headlines of doom and gloom and live in a culture riddled with outrage and fear. As Christians, we too feel the weight of the fall and sin in this age when hopes are few. But we have a hope. We have a hope found not in this world and its empty promises, but in Christ. So we don't lose heart. Why? Because these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So brothers and sisters, hope in God. And as we hope in God, we hold out with confidence, with boldness, the hope of God to this community. With our lives, with our lips, testifying to the kindness and goodness of God in the gospel. And so I want to do that even now. To hold out the hope of the gospel to anyone who has looked for hope Everywhere this world tells us that it can be found in religion, 
in relationships, in money, in accomplishments, in politics. But even now, you know that hope cannot be found in any of those places. Not a lasting hope, not an eternal hope. And so the hope that we proclaim to you as a church today is a hope deeper than the pain of this world, higher than the highest pleasure. So it would be a disservice to talk about such precious things like faith, hope, and love without offering to you the hope of the gospel, that you might know these graces in your life. So perhaps you've come with a friend to witness a baptism, or perhaps you're exploring Christianity and are with us this morning. So hear this clearly. The Bible says there is one way to be saved, and that is by placing your faith and your hope in Christ Jesus to know the love of God shown by sending his son to die for the sins of his people. The good news of Jesus' birth and life, death and resurrection, when you hear that, it first convicts us of sin because we've got to come face to face that we are sinners. But then it rushes us to the reality that there is a remedy for our sickness called sin. And it is in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon a sinner's cross. Today, if you hear the Lord calling in your heart to believe in him, to know him, I invite you, repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have it on his word, you will be saved. Find forgiveness, find life, find hope, both in this life and in the life to come. These words, faith, love, hope, these are a sort of apostolic shorthand. We find it throughout the New Testament, a dozen times in the New Testament, to describe genuine Christianity. The phrase mixes these divine graces together to show us the fruit of the gospel, that its power works so effectively in our lives as Christians who have been born again, and in churches that God forms with the people that he saves. So as we stand here today in the shadow of what will soon be our church home, you know, you can see the steeple glowing right there. It's not glowing, but you can look and imagine a bright light from heaven leading us onward. As we stand here in the shadow of what will soon be our church home, let us pray that we will be a church marked by genuine Christianity our minds filled with faith in response to the truth of the gospel, our hearts burning with love for Christ, love for one another, and our hope fixed on the day of Christ's soon return. And let us pray that as the Trails Church, that we would bear the good fruit of the gospel. Would you pray with me that that would be so? So Father, we ask that you would fill your church with the fruit of the gospel. Fill our lives with the fruit of the gospel. Where we are corrupt, purify us. Where we are in error, direct us. Where our lives need reformation, reform us according to your word. Where we are right, establish us. Where we are divided, reunite us. Oh God, go before us. We pray for the sake of him who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.